Well, everybody, thanks again for sticking with us this week. This is Rick Wagner getting it right here on KNZZ KGLN. We're 1192.7, 980, and 101.3. We're also on the Internet. You can listen live on that. Some people are. Fair amount, actually. We're pretty happy with our Internet listenership. And, of course, you can uh, listen to our podcast, which is a download of the show. And you can get that a lot of places. You can get it on iTunes or you can get it on uh, Podbeam or I think we're on Spotify and stuff like that. But you can also get it by just going to our uh, webpage, therickwagnershow.com. And uh, you can get it there. Just click right on that puppy. And you can also uh, access a lot of the stories we talk about on here, some interesting stuff on, uh, oh, I have some videos up about the Harpoon Missile and what that is and what it can do, a little video about the Abrams, Abrams Tank, which I think is pretty interesting. You can also access uh, Victor Davis Hansen's uh, regular podcast directly from there. And I can put up something kind of fun, which is uh, – about ancient Rome, it's a, a computer recreation of what ancient Rome looked like. It's really pretty cool. And I know you, I have a lot of people out there that listen and that's interested in history, and that's just kind of a neat thing. It's not a neat week, however, is it? Uh, now, there's some things that I know you guys have heard already too much about, and that is a story out of the New York Post about uh, Trump to be indicted. Um, does that really surprise us? It kind of surprises me, uh, to be fair, but uh, I have to say that you know, they were stuck, weren't they? They had to do something. They've they've got themselves in it. 30 counts of business fraud is what sources are saying. We'll see that. We'll see what happens with that later on. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised at those charges, that many of them. This is the throwing things at the wall and repeatedly throwing things at the wall and hope something sticks. I can't imagine from what the information I've seen, and I have a fair amount of experience in charging uh, criminal cases, and I can tell you that it's pretty thin, and I, I think there's even a statute of frauds issue, not a statute of frauds, excuse me, a statute of limitations issue in here that probably is going to get raised, but, you know, you can get a grand jury to charge anybody with about anything, because remember, in a grand jury proceeding, this is the same in almost every state, the grand jury proceeding is, of course, secret, which apparently you wouldn't know from this woman in Georgia that came out blabbing about what was going on in the grand jury down there. But those are secret, and they are ex parte in the sense that the person who's the target or the organization that's the target or whatever is not represented there. And if you are called in to testify, you, for the most part, don't get your attorney in there. You have to answer questions unless you take the Fifth Amendment, which is to say that you're afraid that your answer would self-incriminate you. So you can take the Fifth. There's some ways around that or some offers that you can try and get around that with people. But So you can get an indictment. An indictment is just having the grand jury. And I think in, there, in this state, is there 28 people in the grand jury? There are 21. I can't remember which. A majority. You don't even have to have... Uh, like you would for a conviction where you have to have complete agreement for a criminal conviction, right? You have to have 12 people agree to the guilt on a charge. You don't have to have that in grand juries and depending on the state, but this is New York. I believe that it's just a majority votes for indictment and then you go from there. So I think their case is incredibly weak from what I've seen. Uh, I was kind of thinking that they might be backing off by giving the grand jury time and this and that. But, you know, Alvin Bragg, who's the district attorney in New York, the one that likes to let all the prisoners out, but put the political prisoners, you know, in the crossfires. Yeah, that's his kind of his thing is stuck. I mean, he's made this commitment. He's burned up. Lord knows how much money on this. 
to put this really shaky case together that essentially it revolves around the Stormy Daniels payment and their star witness is Michael Cohen, who's been proven to be a liar so many times that I don't think I could even, you know, get the number correct. This is not a great case. Now, what you'd be relying on if you're looking for a conviction is you're going to be relying on the jury in Manhattan, which is uh, probably, you know, you can get a lot of them on there that probably can Vic Trunk before they even uh, get the case going. But that might not be who you end up with. You might have a few fair-minded people on there. Plus, there's another sort of uh, thing to get over here, another uh, little bump in the road, and that is that after you've presented your evidence, let's say this goes to trial, and I don't think Trump's going to plead guilty to a lesser charge or something. If it does go to trial and there isn't some motion filed, and there could easily be some motions filed uh, on various aspects of this regarding the statute of limitations, the applicability of the charge, a number of things. But let's say it does go to trial. After the prosecution presents its case, and this is the way it is in almost every court in the United States, the prosecution presents its case, and the defense then makes a motion asking that the charge or charges be dismissed based upon the fact that the motion is the prosecution has not presented enough evidence, sufficient evidence, or the kind of evidence that a reasonable jury could think that a crime has been committed and that the defendant that's charged with it committed that crime. It doesn't mean he's not guilty at this point. It means that the evidence they've presented doesn't reach even a minimum threshold to be presented to the jury. And a judge can do a couple of things. They can, and this is, I have to look at a New York law, but I'm assuming it's the same as many of the states. Uh, he can either dismiss it, or if he believes that a lesser included charge has been proven, but not the main charge, he can have that lesser included charge go. So that could be something that would happen. I suspect that will be in the far future. This is not cases and go to trial in two weeks, despite what you see on television where people are arrested. They're in jail reading a couple of magazines, and then they're off to trial. No, that's not going to happen. And I also suspect that there is some part of this to where, while they'd like to convict Trump of something, it's not that important. It's more important that be, he be under continuous indictment and a cloud during this campaign season. The last thing would, they would want would be a quick trial where he might get found not guilty. They really don't want that. And it could even happen in New York. This is a weak case. Bragg had been encouraged, apparently, behind the scenes to either not charge or wait until Georgia's grand jury comes forward and see if they charge something. Or for some reason, the feds charge something over the January 6th incitement that they've got on their minds. I think he put himself in a box. Alvin Bragg is not a smart man. He doesn't know which side of the bread his butter is on. And... This is what we've got. I mean, look at these prosecutors we have. In these We have Alvin Bragg in New York. you got Kim Fox in uh, Chicago. I'm trying to remember the name of the woman in uh, St. Louis. you got Gascon in Los Angeles. I mean, it's just, it's just one inept, woke, unimpressive, and that's, that's being kind, individual uh, inhabiting these offices. And most of them are supported by very liberal groups who gave them a lot of money. Uh, often through the back door with uh, Soros, uh, who gives money to various organizations, and then they're able to distribute it out um, so that in some of these cases, since he's a foreign citizen, he can't contribute directly. So these prosecutors, uh, these are terrible. 
And one of the bedrock principles of the United States, uh, their process, the process that we have, the constitutional process that we have, is that prosecutors have wide prosecutorial discretion in bringing or not bringing cases. And the last thing that I want to do is clamp down on that, because whenever we've tried to do that, we just have very bad results. We tried to do that in the federal system, gosh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, where they tried to take the sentencing guidelines and make them so strict that the judges were stuck in the kind of sentences they could get by all of these factors, you know, did they do this? Did they do that? Did they, did they assist in other prosecutions? Did they, there was a whole list. It's like a check mark of things that raised and lowered the sentencing guidelines. And it sounded good when you were doing it, but it's actually sort of a robotic way to do justice. And that's the last thing you want. So what happened was a lot of people would end up because of the type of case they had in situations where they were getting sentences where really probably wasn't appropriate, but they had checked the boxes, right? So what that does, of course, it's unfair to some extent to people. But the other thing that does is it buys you more trials because if you're really hemmed in by sentencing by sentencing stuff and the prosecutor, in those cases, the assistant United States attorneys, which is the same as deputy district attorneys at the state levels or county attorneys in some places, can no longer cut these crimes down. All righty, we're back here on Rick Wagner getting it right here on KZ, KGLN. Thanks for sticking around. Uh I realized that that we got, you know, at the end of the last segment, I wasn't very clear when I said that doesn't let the prosecutor cut it down. What I'm saying is that a lot of times you have a situation where you've got a little bit of a weaker case. I mean, you know you're doing the right thing, but your proof isn't very good, right? You got bad witnesses, you got, you know, uh somebody that's out of town, you can't find them, you know that maybe you get them, maybe you don't. Uh so you're going to do do a plea bargain. Well, when they do sentencing guidelines with the judge, it ties the hands of the prosecutor, too, so we can't say, look, plead guilty to X and uh, I will agree to a sentence of such and such, right? And this is the sentencing guidelines. And the judge can look at that and approve that or not approve it and, and go ahead and accept the deal. Well, if the judge's hands are tied by sentencing guidelines, he can't do that even if he thinks it's appropriate. So you get a lot of people that are looking at uh, difficult sentences that might have gotten a deal to – you know, not to go to court, but now they're going to go to court because what's going to come their way if they plead guilty isn't going to be much better than if they go to trial and see if maybe they got found not guilty. So you buy more trials, you build more time and everything. So it just didn't turn out very well. So the sentencing guidelines got changed from being mandatory to being just sort of suggested, you know, these are these outside guidelines. And that's what happened. So you know, the idea of having prosecutorial discretion is very important to our system, and it's always worked relatively well. And you and you need it. I mean, people complain about plea agreements and uh, plea bargaining, but the numbers, with the numbers of cases and the numbers of prosecutors in courtrooms, and to say nothing about the number of prison cells and the amount that states will spend on them, are so limited that if you don't have some kind of plea agreements and plea bargaining, you're just not going to get it done. I mean, uh, I remember when I was uh, a district attorney that the, you know, the court, the county court was, and this is some time ago, the county court was seeing, you know, 5,500, 5,600 uh, cases a year, right? So that's just one court. Now, you may remember there are 365 days in the year. 
So let's say nobody got any kind of deal in there, right? And everybody went to trial. Exactly when is that going to happen? Well, there's not enough court days. Say everybody has a one-day trial in county court. Well, maybe a day, day and a half, most of the time in county court, five to seven days in average trial date in a district court because they're felonies. Uh, so everybody in, in county court wants to go to trial. Well, when are you going to do that? How are you going to do that? So the whole system is built around this. Now, if, if you don't want to do plea, plea bargaining or anything like that, you know, you better lay in a lot more judges and a lot more courtrooms and a lot more prosecutors and a lot more jails, especially for people that are sitting in jail. So the system has, while very imperfect, has worked okay in the past. Why it's working so badly now is because all of this sort of safeguards you put in there with bail and supervision and all these kinds of things that you do uh, in from the court that the court normally would do and the district attorney would ask for and there would be a system has just been disrupted. In most of these cities, they have no bail, right? Everybody's on a personal recognizance bond. Even though these are people that are released on their personal recognizance, that personal responsibility is something that left them early in their childhood and uh, has never been exhibited throughout their lives, yet we're going to trust them on a serious crime to show back up. You know, it's sort of like a letter. Hey, we're going to be having a trial here to see if you're guilty of this, if you could drop by. And by the way, don't get any more trouble, despite the fact that in your past, you haven't went a week without getting into trouble, but now we're sure you're going to do just fine. I mean, that is not exactly uh, helpful to the system. This is what the, where the wheels are starting to come off. Plus, we're not wanting to pay for people to be in prison, and apparently we don't want to send anybody to prison, and we're also throwing all sorts of diversity, equity, and inclusion nonsense into the penal system so that people are getting out pretty fast. Yeah. And there's no question that a small group of criminals commit a disproportionate amount of a very disproportionate amount of serious crime. Uh, you know, you can have 500 people, I think I heard this the other day, in the District of Columbia, they did the study in the district, that are committing 70% of the violent crimes. So what you find is if you, you find repeat offenders on serious crime, if you lock them up for a long period of time, your crime rate goes down. We're not doing that either. So this whole system is is screwy. So instead of spending any time doing things that actually protect the citizenry, we're doing political prosecutions. The amount of the amount of money and time that's went into this Trump situation, just take out for a minute Donald Trump and just look at what the charge is, right? The Stormy Daniels stuff and all these business fraud things. Then think about how many resources from law enforcement and the district attorney's office in particular has been put into this. And remember, those resources are finite. So if you take those resources and put them into chasing uh, Donald Trump from one part of the country to the next, what are you leaving out? I mean, you don't, you don't have unlimited budgets. You don't have unlimited time. You don't have, you have none of this stuff, right? So, uh, if you're doing that, what you're doing is you're letting other things go fallow. And the things that are going fallow are the things that affect all the citizens. You know, let's say you think Trump is a really bad guy because he's doing these things. And, but you have a very weak case and you spend a huge amount of resources on it. Why would you do that for most people? Well, it's because it's Donald Trump, right? 
In the meantime, what is the cost? What's the opportunity cost for doing this prosecution? The amount of man hours that are not being put into serious crime, the amount of man hours that Donald Trump is not going to be knocking anybody over the head in the subway and taking their money. I think that's a more serious crime. Now, I also think that people that commit white-collar crimes should be prosecuted. But to this extent, I think that if, if his name was not involved and you took this case in and tried to get somebody interested in it in the district attorney's office there, there would be none. They would show you the door right away. So this is a very problematic thing on so many different levels. So we'll see how that that goes out. And, of course, we had this horrific shooting in Nashville. And the reason I bring that up, because, of course, you've heard you know so much about that, is that it has just put the pedal to the metal again on gun control. Now, they don't like to call it gun control. Uh, they like to call it uh, reasonable gun safety. It's now gun safety, friends. Uh, it's not gun control. It's just gun safety. And, of course, the safest thing about a gun is to take it away from you. Um, that's their definition of gun safety. And this last shooting with the background of this shooter and this uh, manifesto coming out, which was which was incredibly opposed by a lot of these far-left groups because I think they know it's going to be not good for, you know, establishing the sort of mental health of someone in a community that they seem to be protecting. And it's going to come out. So what I see is a huge emphasis on trying to steer the conversation to purely gun control. And on what was Thursday, I think it was Thursday, all sorts of protesters, and I'm going to guess if you check their IDs that most of them are from out of town, um, and they have just rammed their way into the Capitol in Tennessee, chanting, uh, gun control now, gun control now. And I see that less about gun control and more about look over here, don't look at what, you know, we don't want you to see. Doesn't mean they love, don't love gun control. Where I'm at in Colorado, and for these people in Colorado, like I said last week, I testified against one of these bills, of course, went sailing through and they looked at me like I was, you know, speaking Greek. And I don't mean modern Greek, I mean ancient Greek. And, uh, but anyway, that uh, the Colorado House Democrats uh, not only are passing these bills, but they invoked a rule to limit debate to push these three firearms bills uh, forward. And last Sunday, right, uh, the House passed uh, the Senate Bill 23-169. It will raise the minimum age to purchase any firearm to 21 years of age. Now it has to go through, you know, the regular channels and get signed by Polis, which I can't imagine he's not going to sign it. So... I don't see how this isn't going to pass. So that'll be next. And then the uh, enlargement of the red flag laws I testified against because I think there are better ways to do that. And it's dangerous for officers. I'm sure that will be, you know, right behind. So we need to track that just just to see because what's happening is not healthy for the republic. And it's not something that indicates that you're very well trusted with anything out there in the uh regular world. You're certainly not trusted with any firearms, uh, and you're not trusted with, you know, regulating how things happen in your own voting. Uh, you're not trusted with uh, coming up with uh, what medical care you're going to want. There's some crazy medical bills, medical care bills going through uh, the uh, color legislature, for instance, having to do with abortion. 
and uh, it's it's crazier every day. Here in Colorado, um, we have our railroad to California pretty much in place. The only thing that hurts them that they just, I mean, it's Tabor. And now we've whittled Tabor down pretty hard. The courts have been pretty good about everything that gets char- charged as being a Tabor violation. They find a way around it. But if they could get these taxes hammered in, we would be California. So start paying attention, folks out there, and not just in Colorado, but wherever you're at, because there's a relentless thing here. All right, thanks, folks. We're coming around the bottom of the hour here. Once again, like I say every time, I appreciate your hanging on with us. And I uh, I just I think we'll, we've said enough on the Trump indictment thing. You guys have been inundated with the last two or three days and, well, last two days for foot for sure. And uh, part of today and tomorrow and the radio. And so I, I, I probably talked about it too much already. But let me just make this uh, observation. Uh, and this is going to be very startling. It's going to get worse before it gets better. <laughs> I know that's not startling at all, is it? Yeah. You, you have to reach that point. Listen, I think if I could use a World War II example... I don't know if it's truly a metaphor. I guess it is. I think we're sort of at the Battle of Midway right here. Not just because of the name Midway, but for those of you that, that are familiar with uh, World War II and war in the Pacific and the naval battle in particular, the Battle of Midway was a naval battle that probably was one of the greatest uh, battles, naval battles in history, right up there with uh, Don Juan turning the Turks at Lepanto. Uh, and uh, the Greeks uh, beating the uh, Persians in the seas off of Athens. It was a tactical chess game, and it was where the war in the Pacific, in many ways, was decided. Now, you could make the argument, and I think it's a good one, that the tide was turned at Guadalcanal on the land war, and the tide was turned at Midway in the naval battle. Uh, the Coral Sea was, a, was extremely important as well. But the reason I say that is because each side has now seen what the other is capable of and knows that without thinking these things through, without being tactically smart and being able to locate the enemy well, the opponent, in the case of politics, we don't think of people in an enemy, although they certainly treat us that way, without locating them, trying to figure out what they're doing and what their objective is. And, you know, we know what the objective of the left is in many of these things. And you say, well, we see it all the time, Rick, and that's true. But the ultimate objective we understand is probably one of two things. Either it is an idiotic attempt to remold society into an unworkable political situation that will cause the downfall of the country or at least a a crushing sort of crumbling of it. Maybe that's a better way to put it, uh, so that it is restructured through that crumbling into a, an almost unrecognizable mess or an even more idiotic, if such a thing is possible, idea that by destroying the foundation of this country, it will lie fallow and somehow radical sort of revolutionaries as they imagine themselves to be, will rebuild it from the ground up in some idyllic, 
kind of utopian way that they have in their fever brains. Now, so we may know that, but there, these, these tactics that are being employed are very interesting. And I mean, they're obvious when they're pulled out and thrown at us, but, uh, that's the case of uh, any weaponry, right? And some of them are extremely surprising. And we've talked about this whole transgender movement. I mean, I can't pretend that I'm not shocked and surprised at how it's being deployed and the effect it seems to be having when it is a relatively, relatively, it is actually an extremely small segment of society. In other words, the, the troops on that side are, are, are very small. Now they're very loud. And they appear to be getting sort of uh, worked up, and we're starting to see that. I don't think the left likes that to be seen right now. You may remember that we talked we talked about some of their days of rage and things like that for various groups. And this weekend on Sunday, there was supposed to be a transgender day of vengeance, and that was supposed to take place at the Supreme Court. Well. Word got on on that, and many of you that follow this in the news know that. And Twitter, which is a very disappointing thing with Elon Musk, uh, censored anybody that talked about it. Now, maybe it originally was an idea, and I'm giving the benefit of the doubt here, that if you were going to talk about it at all, they didn't want word to get out, wasn't weren't going to use Twitter as a way to rally support, so they just locked it down, and nobody could talk about it at all. But people like the New York Post and some other places, you know, valid news sources try to put it on their Twitter feed and it was shut down as well. And so it, it makes you wonder exactly what's going on at Twitter right now. Uh, I, I still think it's much, much better than it was, but it's still an odd response. And if it is a response, once again, with the benefit of the doubt that they're saying, look, this is a bad thing. We don't want to, we just won't, don't want to be talking about it. I sort of understand that, but I don't necessarily agree with it. At any rate, that's been apparently called off because there was so much blowback about it and this terrible shooting in Nashville. And hopefully we'll get more of this manifesto soon that they try, have tried so hard on the left uh, to stop from being released. And we'll have a much better idea about what's going through this evil lunatic's mind. And I just I I, I don't understand this, you know. This partial portraying in the media and from the Biden administration, too, somehow this woman exemplified the victimization of, of trans people. I mean, no, there's no excuse for murder like this. And there's certainly if, if there can be degrees of murder. And I guess there, of course, we I don't mean like first and second, but I mean, just degrees of moralistic measurement in murder that the murder of children has got to be pretty near the top of the list. And to even have the slightest bit of sympathy that engages, somebody that engages in that, to try and explain even part of it away, is a stunning lack of a moral compass. If these people have a compass, there's no pointer in it. <laughs> there's nothing that's uh, set to true moral magnetic north. There's just There's just the dial. And no pointer, because they have no idea if that's where they're, they're thinking they're living. So, you sort of watch these, these, these various factions, groups, and ideas that are being deployed, and think of them in terms of like a tabletop exercise in a military campaign. These are essentially 
various military divisions in the sense of a political movement, right? Remember our friend von Clausewitz, who wrote on war, that said that uh, war is just a continuation of politics by other means, and of course that works the other way too. Politics are a continuation of warfare through other means. But the tactical approaches are very much the same. And so these various troops and tropes, in other words, ideas and things, to move through this are being deployed just like you would deploy a army or a division or a fleet and constantly probing, trying to find the weak parts of the resistance to it, which would, in these cases, would be us. And if we don't start understanding that and trying to see how these things are deployed and the reasons behind it, and it's difficult to say, and part of that is because so much of what we see in front of these ideas are the people pushing them are essentially drones. And I think drones in the sense of bees <laughs> and in the sense of unmanned aircraft or even, you know, land drones, which I believe uh, you could probably. Uh, yeah, I think you could call it you have land drones. I don't think drones necessarily have to be airborne. But in other words, they're not really particularly smart. And they are not reflective of the true tactical nature. It's, they're like a lot of weaponry, and that is that they're deployed, but you can study them and get an idea why they're being used, but they themselves don't necessarily know why they're being used. Many of them are just hopping on these bandwagons because it gets them attention, because they have a lot of rage against society because of problems that they have and never been fully addressed. And some people just want attention. I mean, that's the other thing you always have to remember is there are certain people out there that want attention more than anything else, and they want attention more than dignity. And if there's ever been a time in history to see that, it's right now. Just look at some of the social media stuff and look at the things that celebrities now reveal about their lives, assuming they're even close to real, and I suspect many of their their relations about what's happened to them in the past and all this is is a exercise in uh, fantastic thinking. But the idea of revealing yourself in a way to get attention, when at its core, lots of time, it makes you look crazy or pathetic, should say something about the dignity. I mean, shame seems to be completely disappeared. And the idea that someone should be ashamed of behavior, if you bring that up, you're just hooted down. Oh, my God, who are you to judge? You know. How dare you shame someone? Well, some people should be ashamed of their behavior, shouldn't they? I mean, and the idea that you don't think people ought to be ashamed of some of their behavior is startlingly crazy and certainly goes against, you know, the way that society controls people's behavior to some extent. But we, we seem to be past that and into that there, there doesn't seem to even be a particular concern about personal dignity. And of course, that's sort of locked up with personal honor where, you know, you're honor bound to do certain things or you give your word on things. In other words, that you, you know, you swear that something's going to be done or that you're telling the truth or something. That seems to have also fallen out of the window to its doom. But the idea that personal dignity no, no longer matters to these people, it just doesn't. Uh, they would rather have attention and get their way and in some instances have some sort of celebrity out there, even if it damages what people think about them on a personal level. And many of them would rather be victims 
than people who have overcome hardship. I remember a long time ago I read, and I wish I could remember who the author was because it was very good, said, you know, there, you can tell a society in terms of how it's headed and its sort of internal makeup by what sort of hero people want to be. And there's really two kinds. There's the conquering hero. That is the person who has overcome things, that has had great challenges and overcome them and become victorious and stands athwart the problem and says, look, you know, I've conquered this, you know, and that you can look up to and learn from. But the other kind is the suffering hero, the person who is known for undergoing a tremendous amount of suffering and or, or will tell you that they are in the hope that you essentially, you know, give them compassion, which we should in many instances, by the way. I'm not saying you shouldn't. There are many people out there that deserve our compassion and a hand up. And, you know, if someone's, you know, been knocked down and injured and can't work or they're just, you know, you have a family member that fell off their deck while they're barbecuing, you know, yeah, they're a victim and they deserve your compassion. <laughs> but what I'm talking about are those that go out and manufacture, in many cases, their victimhood or who spend all of their time trying to find out some way they're victimized so that they can cry out for attention. And when you see a society that seems to be turning that direction more than the conquering hero, I don't think that makes for a nation-state, republic, society of any real strength, does it? I mean, it certainly doesn't advertise any. It doesn't talk about strength, and essentially it, it talks about at best, that you've somehow survived, which in some cases can be, you know, can be important. Like I said, I don't want to confuse us with people who, the, who have been, you know, the victims of, of things that are out of their control. You know, someone gets attacked on a subway and beaten up. It's not like, well, you should have just overcome that and conquered that. No, I mean, they're, they're, they are, in fact, you know, a hero for what they've had to suffer and manage to survive it. Or if not a hero, at least someone, you know, worthy of our attention and certainly our compassion. Right. What I'm talking about is, like I say, this manufactured victimhood and this constant attention for it, this constant seeking out victim qualities. In other words, you have abandoned the idea that you can be successful in a more traditional way and want to try and get attention and people's concern by being miserable. And crying out. And then, of course, the next step when that happens is, is that be, your situation cannot possibly be the result of your own behavior. It must be the result of someone else. And political actors seize upon this all the time. This is not something that's happened in America this last five years. This has happened probably the last 2,800 years or so, you know, since people were able to express themselves outside of, I'm hungry and I need to work all day to eat, is that you, you can break people down into groups who you can then pit against other by saying, well, you're not very happy and it's this person's fault. And if you give me power, I will make sure this person is punished and they stop oppressing you. And maybe I'll give you some of their stuff. I, of course, will take a lot more of their stuff, but we'll give you a little bit. And that's been going on for a very long time. And of course, that's at its most basic level, what's going on with a lot of people in power today. It's the other group that seems to be overtaking the Democrat Party, and certainly anybody that says they're progressive in most instances, 
and that is this idea that everything is a class struggle. Now, they tried to make things a class struggle, class struggle for a long time, and the class struggle idea really comes from this Marxian idea, right? And Marx gets this class struggle idea and much of his other ideas from other people, which nobody likes to you know mention very much. But the idea that there are competing groups. Now, what the dialectic talks about, and Marx uses the dialectic. People somehow think that he, you know, came up with this. And that is that you have competing groups of classes and the classes, you know, one puts forward one way of doing things, the other puts forward another. And there's a clash. And out of that clash comes uh, a third way, a, a synthesis. Now, his synthesis is essentially, you know, communism, such that he understood it, which, by the way, his understanding of his own theory of how things were going to end up is really not very good. If you if you want to read Das Kapital, don't let somebody hand you the Communist Manifesto. I mean, it's fine to read, but that is that's just a pamphlet, essentially. Das Kapital with uh, Marx and Engels, Frederick Engels, who is really the the engine behind Marx's musing lays it out, and you'll read a lot of it, and if you didn't know it was Marx, per se, you would agree with a lot of it in terms of some of the problems he was seeing. But he didn't understand the solutions at all, and he didn't really see how the problems he was seeing at that time in society were also being in the process of being overcome by forces he couldn't quite grasp. You know, that how capitalism really was working. He just froze it for a moment, picked it apart, there were problems that were existing, and then offered a solution that was childlike, really. doesn't doesn't sound like anything that a serious person would come up with. So those class struggles in the very, this dialectic, you know, there's one class, another class, they clash, and then something comes out of that. That goes back to Hegel. And Hegel is an interesting German writer that is almost impossible to read uh, in English. And I don't think that it's because it's badly translated. Now, his idea of the dialectic was just pretty much that, that way. Thesis, antithesis, and then synthesis. And that he thought that's the way history moved, right? That's why it's called philosophy of history. And there's there's some, I think, something to that, although it's dressed up in a lot of really obscure thinking. And Schopenhauer, Arthur Schopenhauer, the other another great German philosopher, wrote what I think is the best critique of anybody <laughs> that you can have, where he said that he thought Hegel was the most absurd waster of paper ever to write in the German language. It's hard to get around that. <laughs> but so but the class struggle thing just wouldn't work for them because in America you can move up in classes. You can change classes. The classes aren't at war with each other. I mean you could move up from the lower class to the middle class and up to the you know the upper classes in terms of economic situation and so forth. We don't have titles of nobility. You're not held in place by who your father was. Sometimes you're held above people because of your who your parents are. I mean you got money and so forth. But we didn't have that kind of class structure. And so it was difficult to freeze people because people still had some mobility in class structure in the United States. We had the middle class, which is the gateway up. And so you have to destroy the middle class if you're going to make things worse and if you're going to gain ultimate control. You can't have that movement through. So they've tried to substitute race and gender or the lack of a specific gender, apparently, for Class. In other words, they're trying to get immutable characteristics. They're trying to say, look, you can't change your ethnicity or your race. And because of that, you'll never be, never be, uh, unoppressed. 
So they see that as a better way because they're able to freeze people in these columns and then use them against each other and with the idea that they can't possibly move through them because the the trait that they've decided to isolate and call a problem between each other is immutable, at least in today's world. And so that's wrong, of course. That's not the way America worked. It's not the way America has been working for decades. We've been making huge progress in that. However, over the last probably five to seven years, especially, we've seen people pulled back to where they're thinking, you know, it's 1951 in, in a small town in Mississippi in terms of what are race relations, that no progress has been made and nothing's been done. Now we want reparations. Well, reparations are always popular with people that are getting them. I mean, who doesn't want to get some money from somebody? Uh, you know, especially if it's for something that you have nothing to do with personally. It's just something that happened a long time ago, perhaps to someone. And how do we decide on these reparations? I mean, we can spend a whole show talking about that. But that's just another cudgel, see. They want to get people all excited about reparations because they know that sensible people will never agree to that because it doesn't make any sense. And you couldn't possibly afford it, and it makes no sense. And the application of it would require dividing people up in ways that would cause huge problems. So they just want to get people excited about it and let sensible people on the conservative side especially, have to be the ones to talk against it because they know they'll speak against it. Sometimes it feels like the best thing to do would be to say, all right, go ahead. Because people on left don't really want that, not the people behind these things. They know they can't afford it. They know it can't be done. They know it would be a terrible thing for everybody and would tear groups that are even saying they want these things apart. Trying to decide who gets it, when, What's the criteria? How do you go back to somebody like, you know, Barack Obama, who's, who's, you know, has a white family and uh, his father is from Africa, but there was no slavery in his, does he get it? Does somebody who can trace himself back to his great, great grandfather being a slave? I mean, this is, you can imagine what would happen. So they don't really want it. They just want to get people excited about it and then stand back and let the other side fight it so that they can point at them again and say, see, this is your oppression. So tides of history are interesting to see, and we're in the midst of them now. What we have to do is keep our senses about us and really study what they're doing and see it from a tactical standpoint, not just a gut-feeling political standpoint. Try and study it that way. We'll be back next week.